This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Good day and welcome everyone to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with us in virtual studio is uh, Dr. Jonathan Lilyblad. Uh Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to have you um, uh, talk to us and share some of your insights and research. As, uh, as, as you know, and our listeners should know, uh, we... We care a lot about uh, Burma, Myanmar here at Northern Illinois University. Um, we have a Center for Burma Studies. Our Center for Southeast Asian Studies is kind of anxiously engaged. And so we, uh, we love it when our friends and colleagues can come share their own um, work with us. Um, your, your latest project, um, uh, or the one you shared with us, Teaching Human Rights in an Illiberal Context, Reflections of a Researcher, in Myanmar is a great blend of which I think for the for the crossroads it's going to be you know this kind of you, there's lots of personal uh, behind the music stuff that uh, I think it's going to be great. Um, man, maybe we could start with a question about you have a really interesting personal uh, history and family history. Um, how did your family history inform your research? Yeah, I mean, so you know uh, because I was born in the country. Um, uh, but yet, you know, grew up in in, in the U.S. It's, it's it's a situation where I kind of am exposed and engaged with, you know, different cultures, and um, I can empathize and see the perspective of people uh, in Myanmar, but also you know, uh, people in the West, and um, in particular, you know, with respect to the work that I was doing and, and a lot of the capacity building projects related to human rights and environmental issues. Um, I, was, I was in a space in Myanmar where I could um, kind of have an awareness of the kinds of concerns that they would have. Um, I was able to also understand a lot of the comments that they were, they, they were, they were expressing with respect to, you know, the, the situation and background that they were coming from and, and what it was that was Driving a lot of their uh, a lot of driving a lot of their concerns. Um, the other thing, and perhaps this is probably the most critical thing, is that um, it, I'm able to to navigate different spaces, right? So you know, for for Westerners, um, you know, I, I I dress and act and talk like anyone who's coming from an American university. So I'm able to have these conversations at a scholarly level as well as with um, aid organizations uh, that they understand. Uh, right, because there's sort of that confirmation yeah. bias where they always want right. to talk to people who look like them, talk like them, act like them, etc. Mm-hmm. But then from the Myanmar side, I'm I'm also able to engage with people there within um, the space of their con- culture because they see me as someone that they know. A lot of people that I worked with knew my family, so there was a certain level of trust and familiarity. Right. Um, and then on top of that, I think there was a, there was a sense of safe space that they felt that there was with me that they could actually raise topics and have conversations. Um, that they would not be able to have with uh, with other Westerners, um, you know, was, I was I was someone that um, 
that they saw me as one of their own, I think it was, you know, even though I, you know, I was coming from a different country, the, because they knew my family, they saw me as one of their own, saw me as someone who was sympathetic. Um, and then more importantly, someone who could actually advocate on their behalf um, using a vernacular and using arguments that the foreigners would, would be able to grasp. And so, you know, it's, I represented both that. And so it's, I, was in the, I was in the classic intermediary space that, you know, scholars mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah. But I, I was the intermediary that had a much deeper engagement with locals um, than, say, other, other uh, foreign The, the intermediary that's often imagined, but actually you actually occupied that space <laughs> in, the, in the kind of perfect imaginary way, like where, where, where um, you can, you have a foot in both worlds completely. Um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, this is, um, you know, talking about imaginary spaces, right, it was, it was a situation where um, uh, I was able to get past or navigate beyond, you know, what Edward Said always talks about is that that process of making the other. Um, and, you know, so many, I think so many uh, Westerners, when they go to places like Myanmar or any developing country, um, is, despite their best intentions, there's always that layer of us versus them and or me versus the other where they're trying to work and nav- uh, understand who right. uh, these foreign parties are whereas with me um they were my relatives right, right? you're trying to understand who you were <laughs> yeah yeah if you like students go abroad often then they find out who they are because they're seen as outsiders for the first time they're able as as where you have this weird phenomenon is you're going you're seen as as one of them you you know you're not uh, you're not an outsider, um, you know, ethnically in Myanmar. T- to that end, um, your your specific family history and what 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 brought your 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 mom fled uh, soon after you were born. Is that right? What 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 drove her out of Myanmar? Yeah. So um, so you know so in, by just by way of background. So um, I was I'm part of what's called the Pao. Uh, so the Pao peoples, uh, predominantly located in Shan State. In the eastern part of Myanmar, you know, I was born in Town G, um, and um, my mother's family, uh, you know, they uh, apparently, it's you know, this is going back into time, but apparently that you know they were rather prominent figures within uh, Shan State society, um, and so I had relatives right. who had had long careers in government, but then also long careers working with civil society organizations. Um, and, and kind of the Sean mother, disproportionately important in sort of Myanmar uh, government and um, administration. So that's well, I mean, you know, it depends on what period of time you're talking about. But you know, relatively speaking, compared to other, you know, other areas of the country, yeah, you know, Sean State is one of the larger, more prominent uh, states, um, but not just uh, politically, but also I think culturally. Um, you know, they they do you know have a very strong assertion of their identity. Um, and that they're very much, uh, you know, are, are willing and able to 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 advance uh, their interests, um, you know. But my mother, yeah. So you know, when I was six months old, basically, what had happened that you know, my mom put me in a basket, swam across the river into Thailand, wow. right? Um, and um, and then that, it, you know, I didn't, I never went back to the country after then. And so you know, we spent time in Sweden. Um, you know, so I, I grew up in Sweden for seven years, and then I. Then we came to the United States. Um, so I, you know, spent most of my life in America, uh, predominantly in Los Angeles. Um, and the, the first time I went, returned to, to Burma was in 2014. So you know, I'd, I'd taken a job in Australia. I was pursuing my academic career in Australia, 
And I was doing a lot of field research um, in Southeast Asia, and I received a Fulbright in 2014 that facilitated my research in Myanmar. Um, and as, it was in the process of doing that Fulbright that I then reconnected with a lot of my relatives. Okay. And it became this learning process that would, so it was not just, it was no longer just research and it was no longer just professional in terms of, you know, academic career or, or aid, aid work or that kind of stuff. But it became a personal journey as well to sort of, you know, understand this entire segment of my life um, that I'd never been exposed to uh, meeting people that I, that knew me, but I didn't know them. Right. Um, they knew you know, stories about uh, your family that you didn't even had. Oh yeah. yeah they... Totally. Completely. Um, and they told stories about me that, you know, I didn't know. Wow. Um, and they filled in a lot of parts of my family history that I'd never understood. Um, and they introduced me to, you know, to things in, in the country that I think most Westerners would never, you know, never right. even be aware of. Yeah. I should say for, for our listeners, um, John is a professor at, at ANU at the College of Law and, you know, works on rule of law and, you um, International law, human rights, environment, society. Um, uh, do you think? Do you think your your career in academic and law was informed by this your your individual journey, or was it an academic one that then blended with the family history? How did how did that come about? Um, so I definitely think it was a dialectical process. It was you know mutually mutually uh, enriching. I guess is the way I would describe it. Okay. Um, you know, it's so you know ostensibly. You know, because this was all really tied to research and, and doing consulting work with aid organizations, um, I was using my my academic training, um, you know, knowledge and skills, um, and then you know, I guess values to use the UN trio of knowledge, skills, and values. I was using my background to to promote um, a lot of these international norms regarding human rights and environmental conservation and rule of law, democratization, these kinds of things. Uh, in Myanmar, right? Because you know this was this was largely yeah. a country that had been isolated for multiple decades, um, and, and it's quite a range of legal activities. You were, I mean, maybe you want to mention yeah. a few of them, like the oh yeah, um, Myanmar. yeah, for sure. So, you know, when the country reopened in 2012, um, they were trying to re-engage with the larger international world, and this meant trying to um, align themselves with a lot of international norms, a lot of international practices. Um, and so this included things like human rights and environmental conservation. And so um, I was doing uh, consulting work for aid organizations, uh, providing capacity building uh, for the Attorney General, Attorney, the Union Attorney General's Office, uh, the Office of the Supreme Court of the Union, uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Environmental Conservation, um, the Ministry of Education, you know, in, in terms of the universities there. Um, and uh, uh, most of it was centered around, um, you know, uh, topics of what is rule of law, uh, what are international human rights, uh, what are yeah. uh, international standards for environment, environmental conservation. You, you um, also mentioned that uh, I mean, part of your work was right that, that Myanmar universities are trying to come up to world standards, and mm -hmm. they brought you on board to sort of as a broker to help figure out um, what that meant. I guess maybe maybe for our listeners, what what were some of the um, challenges or the norms in Myanmar universities um, up until recently and, and continuing really in, in some way, but, you know, like poor, yeah. like I was thinking like the hierarchical structure and the pedag the rote pedagogy mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. What was it like? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for those, I mean, listeners may not 
No, but um, the meaning of a university or the meaning of a university education is not the same across all countries in the world. Um, and what and what you would identify in the United States as a university is not necessarily the same thing um, right. in, in, in other places. So in Myanmar and specifically, um, even though they had benefited from uh, British uh, provision of a university system, you know, that system had was a victim of multiple decades of deprivation and uh, and um, suppression by the military. And um, so, you know, I mentioned this in, in my talk that um, uh, Myanmar ha had or has now, again, um, the lowest per capita uh, of spending um, or GDP per capita of spending on education of all the countries in Southeast Asia, right? Um, mm, wow. And that it's, and you know, it shows. So when I arrived in country, you had situations where the university infrastructure, it was largely buildings, um, the, at least places like Rangoon University, it was you know, what the British had left behind. Yeah, you had more uh, buildings that were more recent, like the Gan University. But across all the campuses, you know, they in two, at least when I arrived in 2014, um, there was uh, internet was largely non-existent. Um, you had uh, libraries that had content uh, that was dominated by materials that were left over from the 1960s and 70s. Um, you had instruction that was still very much rote learning, um, where the teacher would be at the front of the room, and and I mean this literally. The teacher would read a sentence from a book, and then the students were expected to recite the sentence back. Um, oh, and wow. it, you know, there was no no there, were, there was no questions, no answers. Those were deemed direct challenges to authority. Um, the command structure it was a pyramid shaped patron client system, so that people were promoted often often with that chart physically pasted on a, on a wall somewhere so you could see. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, mean, I was, noticed that. <laughs> yeah, it was understood like who was yeah, at the yeah. top, and you know, and um, so it was that kind of a system. And you know, the the spirit of inquiry was non-existent. You know, people were being punished for asking questions. Uh, capacity right. building was also uh, something that you know there were stories. I didn't mention this in my talk, but um, there were I, I had met uh, two teachers who had um, who had uh, who had at some point in time had gotten scholarships to the United States, they'd returned to Myanmar and uh, one, um, her boss, the first day she was back in country, her boss threw acid in her face and said that this is oh a punishment. God. This She said that this is a lesson to the Americans to never help anyone in our country ever again. Um, there was another teacher, um, she was relegated, uh, she was assigned from teaching in a university to teaching in a primary school um, up in Kachin State. Um, and she spent the rest of her career, you know, teaching in a village of, I think, of like 50 people. Um, and right. so, you know, there, there, there are these kinds of things that were happening and playing out there, right? So it, it was a very difficult context, I think, uh, for reform. It was a very difficult environment to introduce things like human rights, uh, which, you know, the, the, by their nature, it's the, the topic directly challenges uh, the status quo and directly challenges power. Um, so it's something that it's, you know, it was definitely um, a huge step uh, in terms of reforms um, and a huge step, I think, for a lot of the faculty and students there. And and all the more kind of um, amazing, uh, given, you know, many, many considerations, but uh, that that a human rights curriculum is is introduced there now how did how did that come about? What's the genesis of that idea? Is it is it part of like we need to get up to. You know, this is what universities have in their law curriculum, 
or or something or was it was it was this uh um civil society kind of movements uh hoping to get um maybe inspire change like what where where do you think that comes from inside outside well, there have been, yeah it's it's so um it's a mixture of both um you know there were always people inside Myanmar who were very uh cosmopolitan in their outlook. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they very much wanted to stay engaged with the rest of the world. So, you know, despite the decades of isolation, they've been making every effort to try and uh, promote, uh, you know, the ideals that their parents or even themselves had, had learned um, back in the 1940s regarding democracy, human rights, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but um, Regarding outside influences, so there have been multiple efforts to promote human rights education uh, within Myanmar universities over several decades. So, um, uh, specifically, there was um, uh, CEDA, so this is the Swedish International Development Agency, had been funding uh, programs through uh, Mahidon University uh, yeah. to promote uh, human rights education throughout Southeast Asia. And this included uh, efforts in Myanmar starting in the 1990s, I think. Um, a tenant with that, there were also other efforts that were coming from uh, entities like Columbia University, which had a very aggressive uh, program of uh, promoting human rights in Myanmar universities. Uh, Open Society Foundation had a program that they had undertaken. Um, the Germans, um, through several of their aid organizations, had a program that they were promoting. Um, and then the Danish government, uh, I think most recently, had you know, initiated their own uh, multi-year program to promote human rights education in the country. All of them had met with various degrees of success um, and failure. Um, you know, the big challenge is that, um, you know, within the Westphalian system that we live in, um, states have to give permission to these foreign aid programs to come into the country. Yeah. Um, and they, they have then the, the endemic state bureaucracies, because all the universities in Myanmar are state universities, the bureaucracies have to then uh, enable the engagement in terms of providing faculty, facilities. Yeah, you find out that when you do an um, MO, when you do like an MOU or you're trying to do one with university, that's like, well, it has to really go up. It doesn't, you know, it has to entirely mm-hmm. go up the chain. It doesn't just exist. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing these impulses don't come from like, the new light of Myanmar, like the, 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 this is, this, these are, these are from the, uh, extra, extra military, um, uh, voices in society. Of, of course, I mean, of course, I mean, that's a dumb question, but, um, but I mean, you know, the, the, and maybe we'll get to it later. Like, are there, you know, you know, did you, did you encounter, um, curiosity or even, even in a mercenary way that, that it's in their interest to, you know, the U.S. does this, right? They they talk human rights uh, as a mean game often as to, and and we can debate whether or not that's practiced often in in its uh, foreign in, endeavors. But it but it's a it's a discursive uh, stance. Do, it, do you see any of that even from the 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 Tatmada, the military government? Well, so you know what I tell um, uh, tell all. Uh, you know, Western entities, or well, actually all international entities interested in Myanmar, is, um, things are not monolithic, right? So, you know, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a dichotomy of, 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 you know, one side versus another, that there are factions. Black hats and white um, hats in the, yeah. Oh, yeah, there are, you know, factions throughout the country across all sides um, with varying positions about what they want from the outside world, right? And so even within yeah, yeah, the military yeah. itself, you know, you have some factions that, believe it or not, um, 
are actually receptive to engagement with the West and to want to reform the country. Um, however, the problem is that they're that they're having to fight with other factions of the military that are all about power, uh-huh. uh, authoritarianism, military control, and um, and now I think most people are starting to realize about business, right? So that you know that you have a military that has adopted the Egyptian or the Indonesian military model, <laughs> where you have military officers engaged in business enterprises. So it's all these different factions that yeah. uh, are at play. And you know, by the way. Um, you know, it extends into the civilian government because even during uh, the civilian era from 2010 to, you know, up until this past coup in 2021, um, you had members of the civilian government that were sympathetic to the various components, various factions of the military. And so a lot of the times when I was teaching human rights, um, I always had to be aware as to who I was talking to um, and what were their sympathies. And what were their connections? And they were probably and you in, could in, see, in your classrooms, I'm guessing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I was well aware that um, even among my own students that I had uh, informants that were planted to report back to uh, the military, to report back to the parliament um, about what was going on and what, what I was teaching. Um, I was given space. So, you know, one of the, my claims to fame, I guess, was that um, I was one of the first Westerners to be given free reign to teach anything and say anything. Hey. Um, in a Myanmar classroom, but there were informants that were just relaying everything that I was saying. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one one interesting thing I was thinking about when you were talking is the, uh, you know, that you have on one side the sort of local actors and sort of indigenous uh, populations that are that are that have their own motivations and and interests, and and then on the, maybe on the other end you have international, you know, human rights. Uh, norms, um, how how connected are are those two pole those two sides not not necessarily polar opposites but how how connected are those two interests the the international human rights side or or, or not perhaps and then sort of um, local communities local actors on the ground is that is it ships passing at night are they talk are, is there uh, there must be uh, there's obviously points of connection but um, what does that look what does that landscape look like. Yeah, I mean, um, it's complicated. That's the way. That's my answer. It's it's complicated, um, and it depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, without a doubt, um, there are there are people within society, within the state, um, and I've even encountered a few within the military that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, the cosmopolitan and their outlook. You know, part of that is that um, they want to see what the rest of the world enjoys. Uh, promoted inside Myanmar, right? So, you know, they want to see okay. free speech. They want to see the ability to have free association, freedom of movement. Um, you know, all, you know, they want to see of this, 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 this kit that is sort of the sort of modernity. They, they, they want to have that still same trap. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, there are different ways to see this. I mean, there are some factions that they just want to enjoy the lifestyle that they see their counterparts in Bangkok or Singapore or, you know, Los Angeles or, you know, London yeah. enjoy. Yeah. But then there are other parts that have really bought into the norms, the ideals, the, the ideas, and they, they want to be part of this global and human rights movement to promote these norms. Um, there are others. Now, I want to give clear caution to this um, that are just simply manipulating it. They see it as a as, as magic words that okay. cause Westerners to respond and it, you know, they're, they're doing whatever it takes yeah. Yeah, to yeah. get education, to get money, 
to get resources recognition uh, recognition from the West. And so they're going to jump through any hoops. They're going to say anything that makes the Americans happy. Right. And so that's something that, um, but you know, that happens in any context. Right. So yeah, this is something I could see. Um, An issue brought up were the, some of the contextual issues that made it challenging that, that you and maybe other mediators had to deal with like the, um, the Myanmar contextual issues versus the international aid con- uh, context, uh, you know, that um, this could sort of, in terms of Burmese history or Burmese uh, sort of current culture, uh, I think our, uh, I think our listeners would be interested. How, what are, what are some of those interesting, you know, waypoints? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, for sure, um, you know, the, Myanmar is a country that is struggling with a colonial legacy that was compounded by military rule. So what I mean by this is that you have an environment where, um, you know, during the time of the British, um, it it was considered really problematic uh, to express political opinions in public. Um, You know, anything that was deemed a challenge to authority was was usually treated accordingly. and you know, when uh, just like a lot of other places in Southeast Asia, when you had a nationalist movement that took over following independence, you know these these colonial mechanisms became a very convenient vehicle for uh, maintaining authority, and so the military then accentuated that in spades. And, and, so, and even immediately after independence, their sovereignty is violated by the KMT, and the United States supports you know Chinese nationalists mm-hmm. like like with you know the, all of this talk about sovereignty and independence like it goes out the window if it's a cold war context so like right the, the right lesson number 1 is that like well that might not work um or or you know all yeah. those are those are empty word promises at least yeah right and so you know it's so it's a combination of of of, of results where uh uh Generally, I'm not saying everyone, you know, I don't want to engage in reductionist, you know, essentialisms or anything like that. Sure. But you do see a, a, a general climate of people being somewhat skeptical of outsiders or, you know, foreigners. There's just, you know, there's Burmese exceptionalism where they say that Myanmar is different. Uh, Myanmar, you know, things, there are certain things that work for everybody else, but don't work for Myanmar. Um, there's also okay. um, a general reluctance to, to, um, you know, to everyone is always afraid to say things. They're always saying, oh, please be careful to talk about this. Please be careful to talk about that. Um, because, you know, you might get a very uh, punitive response uh, from some somebody somewhere, somehow. Um, right. And, you know, it's so you get these kinds of uh, situations playing out. And, you know, so when you're there, um, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, say coming from America, they're, they're going to be given some leeway to say, oh, it's just some crazy foreigner saying crazy foreigner things. But then behind closed doors, it, you know, there's sort of this, oh, my God, you know, how do we handle this? You know, can we get away with this? You know, and, you know, what's what how much trouble are we going to get into if we support this foreigner? You know, these kinds of um, it's these kinds of scenarios that play out when when all the aid workers leave. Right. Yeah. So like, so what, what constraints, I mean, I mean, you mentioned maybe having sort of monitored and being reported up the chain, but what constraints did uh, you face? But also I think you did some research, right. On what the, the constraints that Myanmar law professors and, and, and others teachers face trying to teach uh, human rights. I mean, tell us a bit about your findings. Those are really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I, I basically mapped out all of the structural factors um, that were constricting the activities of human rights teachers in, in the country. 
Um, and so it was a situation where, you know, they're receiving all of this capacity building work from all of these various international aid programs. Um, but then the aid programs would leave, right? The, you know, the donor programs would end, the aid workers would, would depart. Yeah. Um, they would, you know, and then in, in the meantime, you would have then Myanmar University teachers who were left with a system um, where they were getting cons- constraints, uh, number one, from the government, right? In terms of, you know, the government always monitoring, like, what was, what was, you know, what is this concept of human rights? What does it mean? They're getting, uh, 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 they're being affected by the Ministry of Education, because Ministry of Education would articulate all of these rules about, you know, what kinds of training people could receive, uh, whether or not uh, teachers could actually leave the country to receive training, um, you know, who was getting promoted, most critically, they were getting constraints from their own university administration leadership, because in some places you had university leadership that was resistant uh, to human rights or very resistant to anything that might be considered foreign, you know, the xenophobia. They were getting constraints from students even because they would have, you know, problems with some of the, some students would very, was very inquisitive and very interested. Other students, however, would be resistant to certain uh, topics, uh, particularly in some parts of the country. It was anything regarding minority rights, things regarding rights of religion, uh, rights regarding sexuality. These things, you know, they, they, there were some students that found this incredibly offensive. Um, they were also getting, uh, the teachers, I'm sorry, were also getting pressure from society, the communities around the universities, where the communities would find out what the teachers were covering, and they would then um, have um, very uh, hostile responses. And so, you know, you had situations where teachers were actually uh, censoring themselves in terms of what they were talking about and how they were saying it. Um, certain topics that they wouldn't touch, um, certain responses where they would say, oh, this isn't my idea. This is just some crazy foreigner. Uh, you know, this is just some crazy idea in a foreign textbook. We just have to memorize this. Yeah. You know, so you would have these kinds of issues that were playing out. One thing that, so we, we at, at NIU, we had the, you know, the fortune of having many scores of Burmese students and, 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 Young students, youth, future youth leaders here on our campus, and often they're following a curriculum that is engaged in talking about human rights. And one one fascinating thing I, I noticed about the Myanmar students, and you, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll have something to say about this that that they they were they were very adept at, at um, understanding um, human rights in in uh, with say like a minority group in in abstract con- contexts or in in other countries specific contexts, but. Um, there was really an interesting kind of um, hole when it came to like Rohingya, um, uh, for as, as as was sort of the sort of the main example that that um, for our listeners is sort of a, a minority Muslim group in in Myanmar, like heavily persecuted, um, uh, hunted even. Uh, it was a very interesting phenomenon that there were these, and you know, every culture has these kind of these these big exceptions that exist. It, it, when when you assume the moral landscape wouldn't allow for that, like, um, what do you think is? Did you see that with your some of your students and, and others as well? That there was like almost in a religious way, that's like I can believe all these things, but there are these places where you don't that are that are true and you don't go. We we saw it again um, and again in our classrooms. Yeah, I mean, so well, I mean, you know, just a side comment on there. It's you know, I, I should tell Americans that. Um, there's a bit of a selection bias that, you know, so when you have students coming through the YCV programs and other things like that, yeah. um, that's a very specific segment of the Myanmar student population. Um, and more, those are the ones more that are yeah. yeah, well-heeled and a little bit more cosmopolitan, right, in terms yeah. of their awareness of the world. Um, 
But you know what, what, what really got me was actually a generational divide, if anything. I mean, um, mm. on, on a relative basis, relatively speaking, um, there was a much higher proportion of intolerance among uh, baby boomers, uh, anyone over the age of 30, um, than there was uh, with uh, younger people. Um, so in particular, the way I would explain this was, with, with the students that I had, and this was across multiple campuses, so it wasn't just the urban areas. I was, you know, I was teaching in remote places as well, like you know, P University and Taungu University, Taungji University. Um, you know, in addition to Yangon University, Dagon University, in your Yadinabons as well as your Yangons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they generally speaking, with the younger people, the majority of them were not only aware of things on an abstract level, but could actually then relate it directly to what they saw around them. So, the, you know, their ability to do in logical, you know, you use the term logical association, the ability to engage in logical associations with critical analysis and reflexivity about their own personal perspectives on things was much higher compared to um, uh, people in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. And I attribute it to the fact that, you know, those older generations had grown up in a time when the universities and the schools yeah. were shut down, right? So they, they didn't have any of those skills. As a result, um, those generations had a much higher proportion of uh, intolerance. So even when they received capacity building sessions on human rights, they couldn't connect it to what the what they saw around them, and they couldn't connect it to their own personal rationalization about what they saw around them. So, for example, um, in my classrooms with this, with the younger students, you know, around the 18, 19 years old, um, it was only a minority of them that said human rights uh, applies to everyone, but it doesn't apply to those people in Rakhine State, right? That was, yeah. a, that was a very small percentage. Whereas with people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, I would say almost half of the people that I encountered would say that, oh, human rights applies to everyone, but those other people are not human. Right, they don't belong right. here. They've never, what, you know. They, yeah, yeah, right. Have, and, and, et cetera, et cetera. And they would say the same thing regarding like uh, LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. It was the same distribution. Yeah, no, the a, younger a generation striking positivity really towards LGBTQ. I mean, maybe even more so than their peers in America in some ways. I mean, maybe that's not true now, but like it was, they were definitely ahead of the curve. Um, You know, the... uh yeah, if I guess if if you're listening to this and you don't know, you sh you should. The military takeover uh, this year, um, as the as the government refused to sort of recognize the findings of the election, um, obviously that with goes out saying that had trouble and and um, muddy the water for you or make it make it more difficult, make it in some cases impossible. Um, do you have any uh, sort of anecdotes or about the you know how it how that raised the stakes personally um, and maybe, and, and, and for your friends and, and maybe students as well, how that affected um, these, these human rights issues that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, um, well, I mean, you know, so to mention, you know, I'll, I'll just return to what I'd said uh, earlier that, you know, human rights, human rights is a topic by, by its nature is challenging the status quo, right? You're asking for people um, to change themselves, to reach um, these norms about, you know, how we treat other human beings. Um, but, you know, that by challenging the status quo, you actually then generate a threat uh, to those who are at the top, who enjoy power and the status quo, uh, because, you know, there are things that they don't want to see, right? Equality, free speech, right to mm -hmm. movement, mm -hmm. you know, these yeah. kinds of things. Um, 
and so for sure, you know, after after February 2021, um, I could see that you know students and teachers were involved in in protests, um, and it was by and large predominantly you know uh, people uh, students and teachers who had been uh, learning about human rights, right? I mean, you know, it may be that's just human. It was the kind of people who learn that kind of a topic yeah. are the ones most likely to be out in the streets protesting. But what, you know, there were some dark days for sure. You know, it's, um, there was a day when um, there was a mass arrest of students and, you know, I, I saw, you know, a list of names of students and I recognized, um, you know, a significant number of, I think more, you know, more than 30 students that I, uh, names that I recognized uh, who had taken my classes. Um, oh. There was another day when I saw, Heartbreak. you know, they, they had, they had saw this, you know, teachers who were being arrested. Um, and I recognized the names of more than 90 uh, of teachers that I knew. Um, and then even more that there was a day when they, another day when they had uh, dismissed teachers from their jobs, uh, you know, for, you know, for resisting yes. the, yeah. the, the junta. And once again, I, I was going down the list of names and I, I recognized the names of almost, uh, well, not almost, the majority of the teachers uh, that were being dismissed at, 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 I think, about 14 different universities that I visited. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was really quite, um, it was quite personally, uh, you know, it was really, it was a difficult, it was difficult personally on a personal level. Cause you know, these are people that um, in the course of my work and because of my research um, I hadn't, you know, unlike other aid workers who leave after one year or, you know, even a month or two weeks, you know, I was in Myanmar six months out of the year because it wasn't just research. It was personal. These are people that knew my family. And, you know, so I got to know them yeah. on a very deep personal level. So it was, it was, it was a home. This too, yeah. Yeah. As you gaze into your, into your crystal ball, um, I think we can all imagine what the worst could be. What, what, what could be one of the best outcomes that, that, that could happen <laughs> out of this? Is, is that, is that possible? Yeah, at, at this point, um, you know, I, I don't see, you know, good things happening, right? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the, in in all best possible worlds, you know, Myanmar becomes a, a civilian uh, democracy. I guess I, I, democracy, say, I say, would they, you know, they, do you think but, they're going to, the, 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 the harassment and killing, that would that, will that continue to decrease until it becomes just a normal autarky um absolute absolutist uh, like what what do you um uh because and and there's a worry that that when that happens that it becomes it becomes forgotten it becomes you know it's not on the tips of everyone's tongue it's not uh, yeah um, well i mean I mean, for sure, Myanmar, I think, is fading from, you know, the, the news cycle, right? It's it's being overtaken by other yeah, yeah, yeah. things. You know, now like Afghanistan, I think, is, is a prominent example. Um, right. But, uh, you know, for Myanmar, for the people of Myanmar themse- you know, uh, themselves, um, you know, the, the the outlook is is quite bleak uh, at this stage. It's, you know, it's it, the, the difference between this time versus, say, 2007, 1988, is that... Um, I think the will to resist is way, way more extensive, both in, in breadth and depth. Yeah, it's widespread uh, compared to before. Uh, it's also much deeper in terms of like how strong people feel. Um, and so, you know, you see resistance happening. It's actually, if anything, increasing in, in a lot of the urban areas. 
Um, it's, it, you know, not just within Yangon and, and uh, Mandalay, but also in a lot of the other uh, cities and villages. Um, so I don't think that this is going to be just a, you know, a short-term thing. And if anything, you know, I've, I'm, I'm part of that community that sees this as becoming a failed state scenario that um, if anything, you know, the outlook is that it's going to be escalating struggle, escalating armed violent uh, conflict. And um, what's really worrisome is it's not going to end up being a dichotomy between military versus pro-democracy protesters Um, that, you know, in a place like Myanmar, you know, given its multiple decades of ethnic armed organizations fighting on multiple fronts. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, it's going to end up being uh, factions fighting it out uh, for control of diff- over different parts of the country. So you're going to have a situation where the you thing- mean, You mean with each other and not, not against the military necessarily? Oh, they'll be fighting- the, well, they'll, they'll always they'll, be following the military, military but also- Yeah, they'll always fighting. be fighting the military. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, but they're also going to be fighting for whatever they can get for themselves, right? Um, because you know, the, there's already a situation where some of the, um, uh, the resistance groups in Yangon and Mandalay have, have stated publicly that they don't report directly to the national unity government. Um, and if anything, they're actually frustrated with the with the NUG, and similarly with the, some of the ethnic armed organizations, um, they're they've actually they've made statements uh, indicating that they yeah. reserve the uh, the rights um, to simply pursue their own interests. Um, and they're, that not gonna co- they're not going to coordinate resistance. Um, well, some of them they they may as a matter of convenience, but you know the, the ulterior priority will always be. Yeah. Um, their own person, not personal, but their own uh, various uh, uh, organizational interests, right? So, if it becomes you know, increasingly factionalized, do you see that breaking them along class lines, ethnic group lines? Uh, what, where, where do you see the those um, those taking shape? Urban, yeah, rural, well, as things, pro- yeah, as, th- as things progress, there's going to be multiple fracture lines, right, across different dimensions, right? So. You know, to go back to Benedict Anderson's imagined communities, right? The thing that we call Myanmar, Burma, is an imagined community that was left behind by the British, um, and they, in turn, had basically, you know, uh, asserted control over, you know, all of these different sovereign entities that, uh, you know, have never really surrendered. Yeah, I'd say we did. We, did, we just right? did this today. I talked to a bunch of Karen, um, you know, refugees, and they're like, "We've we've never been part of Myanmar, by the way." You yeah. know, um, and yeah. uh, Burma has hunted us our entire, you know, and, and so, yeah, the, even, even right, the idea that there is a, um, a Burma or Myanmar is, is, is itself a very um, aspirational, <laughs> to put it nicely. Um, yeah, you know, so there's going to be, so there's one dimension of fracture along these ethnic or, you know, um, ethnic lines. There's another line of fracture in terms of um, uh, uh, organizational warlord warlordism because you yeah. know like even in Shan state the shans are divided among multiple groups uh following different different uh, leaders well religion Bo- uh, Bo- buddhist versus up upland uh well well there, that's another fracture line uh between you know the mountains versus the the, the lowlands uh, because you know the mountains they've always tended to be much more uh disassociated from a lot of the central uh right uh political systems that are coming out of napido and before that, Yangon, there's another fracture line regarding religion, right? So, you know, um, the, there's always there's always been these demarcations between Buddhist versus non-Buddhist uh, uh, factions. 
There's going to be another fracture line uh, between the more cosmopolitan merchant uh, class okay. uh, versus a lot of the other, uh, you know, business interests. Um, but you see, so the, the, all of these areas where the, the entire entity um, can simply just fall apart. And I think people are waking up to the, I mean, the Western, I think the West um, has always thought that, and not just the West, incidentally, I think China and India are making this mistake as well, that there was, that, that there is this political entity called Myanmar and that there is, you know, somebody to negotiate with uh, on that side. But, you know, uh, I don't think yeah. people understood how fragile that was. Right, it ignores the domestic realities of this thing that we identify as Myanmar. Wow, that's a that's a terrifying. <laughs> I mean, but but a, but a real. I mean, I remember I remember feeling that in in ninety eight in vis a vis Indonesia. Like, could this could this place that is a very the was in fact the genesis for the idea of the magic community will could it could it spin into you know three hundred different uh, states and. Um, it, it 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 didn't but um right there's no the, the 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 casual lazy assumption that it just well it'll you know it'll always be there for Myanmar it, but you know it'll it, it might not um and uh so um well uh we we that's that's what you, that's what happens when you talk about tough subjects right it's uh, it's hard to leave on a mm-hmm. we can't even leave on a happy note but there is a good note which is you're you're you've got some publications coming out maybe in the in the spring, uh, where, where should we look for those? Where do you, do you have an outlet um, for those yet? Yeah. So I have, I mean, I've got some articles that are one article that's currently in revisions that hopefully will appear, uh, in 2022. I'm working on, um, actually two books, um, based on the work that I was doing in Myanmar. So hopefully, uh, one hopefully will appear with, with Routledge and, and, um, in, uh, June of 2022 regarding, um, indigenous indigenous rights in Myanmar um, and their engagement oh, wow. with international human rights uh, mechanisms. Um, yeah, and then I've got another book project that's uh, coming up, um, although that's still in a very nascent phase. Um, again, about the you know the issue of indigeneity um, and indigenous uh, rights um, in Myanmar. Um, We've uh, well, um, hey, let's uh, think uh, things to be hopeful for when. Let's have you back in person, maybe knock wood, yeah. uh, to uh, to talk about your your book slash article when it comes out. That'd be that'd be great to to hear about and have you back um, uh, on our campus. Uh, well, um, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. And um, uh, oh, I wanted to ask before you go: is there is there any plugs for? Um, um, Websites, uh, things that you're reading that uh, that people who want to know more, where, where should what should where should they be looking um, on on the subject? Yeah, I mean, so for anyone who's interested in uh, Myanmar topics, um, there is the Myanmar Research Center at Australian National University, so sort of a sister yeah. uh, association with NIU. Um, and so there's you know there's a there's a, a body of Myanmar scholars at ANU. Uh, across the whole entire slate of disciplines, right? So not, you know, including physics and uh, um, and uh, biology and zoology and those areas as well. Um, I would also um, encourage um, anyone uh, who's interested in Myanmar topics. Um, there's, a, there's also work being done um, by the Law Asia. So that's the legal association for, uh, for Asia as a whole. Um, so they actually have a human rights committee that is focused on issues in Myanmar, as well as a couple of other countries in the region. 
Um, and then of course, um, you know, there's all the various aid organizations that continue to try um, and provide humanitarian assistance in Myanmar. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, you can look at the international ones like Red Cross, the Danish Institute of Human Rights, um, there's CETA, which is coming out of Sweden, uh, Germany. Um, and then, you know, my understanding is the USAID is, is trying to figure out an appropriate response. Um, and then um, uh, the Australian government, which is also has its own humanitarian aid programs as well. Um, um, so, you know, I, I would highly recommend those. And of course, there's always um, the uh, Myanmar aid organizations. Uh, run by expatriates and the, and the diaspora community. Um, and so I, I would strongly urge you to take your time uh, and work through those. There are, there are a lot of them, so I, I can't name all of them here and I don't wanna favor anyone, um, but they are there. And particularly in the United States, they're very active um, and they very much are uh, yeah. have instructions about ways that you can lobby the American government uh, with particular actions that are um, considered effective that Myanmar people consider to be effective um, uh, foreign policy actions by the U.S. government. Great. So thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Jonathan, and uh, we'll hope to see you again soon. Take it easy. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.